Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. On the screen, we're back in the Good News Kingdom. Uh, we've been kind of walking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew over the last couple of years slowly, and uh, we're going to jump back into it this morning. As we start, I have a quote from an African church father whose name is Augustine. Maybe you've heard of him before. But he is famous for several things, but one of his more famous quotes is this. He says this, To fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek Him is the greatest adventure. To find Him the greatest human achievement. I'm going to read that again, because I may just glance over your mind for a moment. But to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievements. I would ask you in your own mind to define what is the greatest romance of your life. I would ask you in your mind to define what is the greatest adventure you could go on. And what is the most greatest accomplishment that you could achieve in your lifetime. And I think it's important that we come to see that St. Augustine said that all of these are wrapped up in God, and anything short of God is going to be a failure in every one of those aspects, in your romance, in your adventures, and in your achievements. That is not me just saying that, that is human history telling you that. And I think it's good at the beginning of every year, whether you are a New Year's resolution person, if you love them or hate them, if you're like me, you've tried to set them before and you never accomplished any of them and you just gave up on all of them. In one sense, I don't care about your resolutions. What I do care about is that New Year's should be, could be, a time that should cause us to reflect on our lives. Like the Christian story the Christian rhythms that we do, whether this is what Nate just talked about, the Christian calendar, or even when we do communion once a month, what is the point of communion? It's a time of reflection. It's a time of thinking that God instituted the Passover for Israel for yearly observance and reminders. They did what we call covenant renewal ceremonies, Israel did. And that, what that was is a renewal of the covenant for them to be thinking and reminding themselves of who they are in light of who God is. And New Year's is just a time for us to actually stop and think as Paul says to the Corinthians twice, to examine yourself. What is your greatest romance? What is your greatest adventure? And what is the thing that you long to achieve most? Because if we don't stop and think, we're going to just be swept along into the American busyness. And before we know it, we are out in the middle of the ponds, far from where we want to be. Chasing things that are going to fail us. 
trying to accomplish things that are not going to actually satisfy us. And, I, and I'm just convinced of this more the older I get, that without God being in the center of all those things, it is an absolute waste of your time. Because once you find it, there's going to be more that you need. Once you achieve it, you're going to have to achieve even more. We all think if we reach this destination, we're going to be happy. Okay, and I use this example every couple of years because I love it. Tom Brady in a 60 Minutes interview, after winning all these Super Bowls, and after he's no longer married at this point to Giselle, um, but I'm sure whoever his new fling is, she's probably not ugly, and has more money than you and I will ever have in our lifetime. What does he say after all of those things? There's got to be something more. So if you think you're going to achieve more than Tom Brady, accomplish more than Tom Brady, and have greater romance than Tom Brady, you might be the first human ever to get all those things and say, I'm good. So you try as hard as you can to be better than Tom Brady and achieve all that. And I promise you, 99.9% .9 of the people in this world will never get what he has. But the stupidity of our minds says, I will be that 0.01%. I can do it without God. I will show everyone. And you won't. Which is why Augustine, the African church father, is so helpful to remind us that your greatest romance, your greatest achievements, and your greatest adventures have to be sourced in the triune God, or you are absolutely wasting your time having the best time on life on this earth before you actually experience hell that's really hell. Separation from God for all of eternity, with no hope of ever having his presence. And New Year's is just the time to stop and think about the reality and the seriousness of what we're about. Americans, we like to make life trivial and light because we don't want to deal with reality. We don't have to deal with death every single day. I was one of my favorite, I don't use them a lot because I try not to bore you, but one of my favorite church, church historians, theologians, his name is John Owen. Okay, I have a 16-volume set in my office if you want to get bored and need some sleep. Okay, it is the best cure for um, uh, uh, insomnia out there. Okay, and this man, if you study his life, um, was catapulted with Oliver Cromwell into the story. If you know British monarchy and all this stuff, like all this fame and all this reputation, and he's written 16 volumes. He's one of the greatest reform thinkers out there. I mean, this man, we look at him like, what a great man. Do you know he had 11 children? Ten of them died in childbirth, and one made it to be eight years old. Can you imagine losing 11 children? Like, that's the reality that we don't have to deal with in our culture, because we have such good and healthy medical staffs that can deal with all of these things. Does that make sense? We don't have to, like, wonder if we're pregnant, if we're going to die in childbirth, or our kid's going to make it in childbirth. We don't even, I mean, those are outside chances. Does that make sense? But it's the complete opposite of what the world used to be. And so we make life trivial. We make life light, because we don't have to deal with it every day. And so I think it's good for New Year's 
for us to stop and think about reality. What is real? Matthew chapter 13. We're starting a new section in Matthew. We started Matthew, what, Nate, like six years ago? Because we'll do one of these sections and then kind of do like another series, if that makes sense. And uh, we just came through the gospelization series and Advent, and uh, now we're jumping back into section number five here. And in this section, we're going to see rejection, suffering, and glory being the time of Jesus's ministry. We're going to see him experiencing rejection by the Jewish leaders, rejection by his people. We're going to see him begin and his, his um, followers begin to experience suffering. And in this section of 13, which is really just chapter 14 through 18, there is this climax that each of the stories leads you up into like the climax of the entire book. And I would say the climax of the entire book is actually, might be the resurrection, but in this point, is the transfiguration. Anyone remember that story where Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured? And after that moment, everything leads downward to Jerusalem, to his death. Okay, so we are really done with all of the neat, fun, cool stories of Jesus where everyone loves him and he's a nice guy. Now we're getting to the part of the story where everyone begins to hate him wants to murder him, and is trying to kill him. And we're going to begin to look at that story this morning, looking at John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 13, starting verse 53, we're going to read down to chapter 14, verse 6, says this. When Jesus had finished the kingdom parables, he moved on from there, and he came to his hometown, and began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom And these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't all of his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? I don't know if you ever thought about this. That next phrase is very interesting. Aren't all his sisters with us? You ever think Jesus had a sister? Like, how would you as a sister relate to Jesus? That'd be the most annoying brother ever. They had lots of sisters. Where did they get all these things? You're like, Scott, I thought you were going to say they were beginning to hate him. Uh, When he were amazed, they began to do what? Fall on their knees and worship? No, they took great offense at him. And so Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except where? In his own hometown. In his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And now, building on that idea of a prophet not being accepted in his hometown, he's going to tell a little story about John the Baptist, Matthew does. At that time, chapter 14, verse 1, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John. He's going back in the story, if you're trying to follow this story right here. John the Baptist, he saw Jesus and he's like, oh my gosh, John the Baptist came back from the dead. And now we're going back in the story. So verse 3, now Herod had arrested John previously, bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. 
but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Father, thank you for giving us this space this morning to be together, to love each other, to share the stories of what you're doing in our lives, to sing over each other the truths that we are your beloved, that our names are written on your hand because of your blood. And I pray now that as we look at the story of John the Baptist, that we would actually see Jesus and his love for us, that would arrest us and bring us back to a love, a deeper love for our God and our King and our brother Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The historical setting here, we're talking about a man named Herod Antipas. This is not the Herod in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus, uh, remember they went, the three wise men came and to Herod and Herod was like, hey, when you find this Messiah guy, tell me where he is so I can go worship him. This is not that Herod, but he is related to that Herod. Uh, that Herod, King Herod, had four sons, and when that King Herod died, he split his kingdom into four regions, which is why he is called King or Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. What is a Tetrarch? He's a ruler of one-fourth of Jerusalem, of, uh, sorry, of Israel. And he has the territory north up in Galilee, which is where Jesus spent most of his life in ministry, is up in Galilee. So now Herod Antipas, one of his four sons, is ruling up there. Herod Antipas, um, we're going to see in just a minute, was married to a woman named Herodias. But he was also very upset that he was not being able to be named king. He was just named a tetrarch, not a king. To him, a title was really important. He wanted to be king. So what did you have to do to be king in that day? You had to go to Rome. You had to ask Caesar, hey, can I be a king? And Caesar came back to him and said, no, you can't be king. And he was very upset. He was very angry that he was not able to take the title king. When he married this lady Herodias, we'll come back to that in just a minute, she reamped this uh, desire within him. You need to be crowned king from, from Caesar. And so when AD 39, a couple years probably after Jesus uh, ascended, he went back to Rome and asked for kingship from an emperor named Caligula, if you know Roman history at all. And what did Caligula do? Said, no, you can't be king. And actually, because now you've asked a second time and I'm sick of you, you're being sent to France. And he was just exiled. And that's the end of Herod. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background of what's going on here. This guy who is quest or deep uh, quest for kingship, authority, title, privilege, status, never got it. You ever meet these people? All right, this is who he was. Well, in the midst of this story, he has another brother named Herod, or sorry, Philip, who is ruling in the southern, more like Judea, like Jerusalem area, and he is married to a woman named Herodias. Okay, now like a good family always does, you steal your brother's wife. And that is what Herod Antipas did. Uh, this lady Herodias left Philip and began a new romance with Herod Antipas in the north. And so now Herod Antipas in the north has divorced his first wife, has married his brother's wife, and is now ruling in this particular area. Well, if you're John the Baptist, 
and you hear about the ruler of the Tetrarch, ruling your area, who has divorced his wife and is now married to his brother's wife, and you're John the Baptist, you don't just be like, well, I hope he has a good day. I hope they have a nice time together. No, John the Baptist begins calling them out. He begins telling them, oh my word, I have, a, I have this little chart here. This is how crazy um, the story is, all right? There's four sons. I, I'm just going to do this, okay? So Herod the Great at the top, he has four sons. I just have three of them here. One of the sons on the far right is called Aristobulus. This is where it gets really crazy. Who had a daughter named Herodias, okay? So do you, do you catch the weird family tree going on here? She ended up marrying two uncles, all right, and they had more like a family bush than a family tree. It was a very messed up, crazy, crazy family, okay? So it just adds to the reality of the debauchery and the craziness that John the Baptist is speaking against, okay? And Herod was not a fan of John the Baptist calling him out. And here's a reason why. Uh, if you understand the story of the Israel, after the last Old Testament book was written, and it may have been Malachi, which is the last one in our Old Testament. It could have been Nehemiah, somewhere in that time frame. But either way, there was no prophet of God for 400 years. And why that is significant is because if you go from the time of Malachi backwards, there's always been prophets. There's always been Moses, or Joshua, or Elijah, or Elisha, or all the prophets. And then you come to this time period in Israel's history where there are no prophets. And so when John the Baptist shows up, and he's doing prophetic ministry that seems to be validated by God to the nation of Israel, guess how excited Israel gets? Guess how popular John the Baptist becomes? So when John the Baptist, who's the first prophet for Israel in 400 years, and all the people are excited about him, begins to call you out, you don't get real excited. But you know who even got less excited? Was his wife, Herodias. Herodias hated John the Baptist. He, she like had this deep desire that she wanted him killed. And, and I have on the screen there this idea between Mark and Matthew's account. Like, what is really Herod's, you know, attitude towards these people? Well, his attitude in Mark says this. Mark notes that Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, so here's this crazy ruler who looks at John the Baptist, hates him, but is intrigued by him. Okay, this is like a modern-day movie, isn't it? Like where the wife wants someone dead, and the husband's kind of like, oh, maybe. Yeah, he is a jerk, but he's kind of intriguing. If I kill him, everyone's going to be mad at me. And then Matthew notes, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. And so you can see, like, where there is strife, in the marriage between Herod and Herodias. You can see where John the Baptist is coming in between them, and Herod is stuck, like he wants to please his wife. He doesn't want to make everyone in his country, empire, hate him. He doesn't want to, like, just kill John the Baptist because he does find him somewhat intriguing. So what does he do? After John calls him out, he's in the middle of a party. He's in the middle of a party. And I left this story out, this part, out when we read it, in case you didn't know the ending. If you know the ending, it's all right, but you go to chapter 14, verse 6. 
It says, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Uh, A Jewish historian tells us the name of this daughter. The daughter's name is Salome. Okay, and Salome is brought in to dance. Okay, now in that day there was a men's hall for the king, and then there was a separate place for the women. So the only woman in this hall for the king's birthday is this daughter, Salome. She's the princess. And it's unique that the princess herself would come in. It wouldn't just be a slave or some hired person to do this. It would actually be the princess, which was a great honor for Herod to have his, really weird, stepdaughter come in and dance for them. And this wasn't just like, you know, the the country line dancing, all right? This was like provocative sexual dancing for all of the men at Herod's birthday, And because he was drunk, which is reading between the lines, okay, he doesn't say that, but more than likely he is very intoxicated at this point, and is so pleased with her that he says to her, you can have whatever you want. So Salome leaves, and if you read the story in Mark chapter 6, she goes outside and finds her mom, Herodias, and says, hey, guess what? Herod said, I can have whatever I want. And Herodias is like, sweet, this is what you're going to ask for. Okay, now, if I was Salome, I'd be like, that's not what I want. (laughs) But apparently she didn't have much choice. And she came back to Herod and said, this is what I want. I want John beheaded. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter right here in this party. Okay, first of all. This is so out of context with our day. Who does that? Who wants a king's, who wants a living head just sitting? I don't want that. I'd pass out. Like, I'd just be done. I'd be gone. But this is the time that, just a very different world that we're far from, that it wasn't uncommon to take someone you hated, the champion's head, and begin to hold it up and to show your authority and power over it. And remember a man, a little boy, ruddy boy named David? When he cut off King Goliath's head, I would have passed out again, but he held it up and was like, look, I won, we won. Like this was a, uh, a symbol of authority, of victory. When Salome came back with this request, Herod was greatly distressed. The, the Greek word here means he was filled with grief. Like he did not want this request to be granted. He's probably thinking to himself, what an idiot I am. I should have said, I'll give you anything but this. But he wasn't thinking that at the time. And so John the Baptist, sorry, not John the Baptist, Herod, number one, could not go back on it because it was an oath. Like, we don't understand oaths. Like, we make kids our prom. We make, how many of you parents ever made a kid a promise and they do something crazy or bring up something weird? You're like, not that. Anything but that. You can have everything but that. Any parents ever do that? You can't do that back then. When you make an oath, you actually have to fulfill it. And the reason why is everyone in the king's party heard about this oath. And he probably did not want to be made fun of or look weak by all the people in the party. And so it seems like 
that finally, because of his oath and the dinner guests that were there, he, he says, fine. And so he calls the executioner. I, didn't, I don't know how this all went down. Went to the prison, beheaded John the Baptist, obviously died, took the head, brought it into the platter, and showed everybody. And now the forerunner of Jesus, the first prophet in all of Israel's history for 400 years, has now just been murdered, made a martyr for Jesus by beheading. What do we do with this story? Well, a couple things I want to do with this story is I want us to see that one of the reasons why this story is so significant in the story of Matthew is because Matthew wants you to connect some dots between two prophets, between Jesus and John. Both of them were prophets. And what we're going to see is like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That to be a prophet is to be persecuted. To be a prophet, as read in chapter 13, is not to be accepted in your hometown. Or as what we'll see in a few years in Matthew chapter 23, it says, So you testify against yourselves that, though, that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started, Jesus said. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you be condemned to hell? I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. And some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. What is Jesus telling the religious leaders in Matthew 23? He's basically just telling them, you, all you do is kill the leaders. All you do is kill the prophets I send you. And know this, that one day all of their righteous blood and judgment is coming back on you. That to be a prophet in Israel was not a fun task. It was not a fun calling. It was to be rejected. It was to be flogged. It was to be murdered. And Jesus and John both experienced this. Number two, what we see is not only that both were prophets, but that, number two, the Jewish leaders wished to kill both John and Jesus, but both are afraid of the people. We've already seen how Herod was afraid to kill John the Baptist because of the people. But in Matthew chapter 21, it says they looked, the leaders looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people that held, the people believed that he was a prophet. Or Matthew chapter 26, they said we cannot do it during the festival, most likely Passover. They said, or there might be a riot among the people. So the connection between John and Jesus is they're both prophets. They're both being executed, both being murdered. And yet they can't do it because the people are going to, re are going to relent, not relent, are going to go against what they're saying. But then interestingly, number three, I think this is interesting that between Jesus and John, is that both were executed by reluctant men. Sure, Herod didn't love John, but at the same time, he didn't want to give in to his oath. Do you remember Pilate? When Jesus was standing before Pilate, what did Pilate say? I don't want this, but if this is what you want, I wash my hands and you can do it. 
Both were executed by reluctant men. And what it shows us is that to be a prophet of God will demand your life. But it goes more than that. Because what it means is to be a follower of this prophet of God, Jesus, is going to demand your life. See, the prophet John the Baptist was following the great prophet Jesus, and it cost him his life. And he's saying it the same for us, that our following of Jesus is going to cost us our lives. It's going to cost us everything. Your, your and my faithful allegiance, far from being perfect, will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. It's going to cost you to die to your own schedule and agendas. You will not be free to do whatever you want whenever you want. You will be forced to do things you don't want to do. Okay? Any of you do a thing, something in the name of Jesus this week you had zero desire to do? Only me? <laughs> All of you should be pastors, probably. There's so many things in the name of Jesus I do that I don't want to do. I don't want to stop reading my book. I don't want to stop writing. I don't want to stop running. I, I want to do the things I want to do, and yet it's, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. It's going to cost you to die to your financial dreams. As you'll come to see that your money is not your own. You know that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the thief should stop stealing and go get a job. And why does Paul say the thief should go get a job? We would say so he could pay his own bills and I don't have to pay it for him, right? But Paul actually says the thief should go get a job so that he will have money to meet the needs of others. That's crazy talk. Why do you have a job? Not just to pay your bills, but to meet the needs of other people. Your money is not yours. It's God's, all of it, not just 10%. If you've been around Redemption Church, we don't believe in a tithe. You ever heard of the 10%, the word? This is like bonus. Tithe is just a Hebrew word for 10. And if you want a tithe, I tell this joke every few years, we would love your tithe. In the Old Testament, you're supposed to give 23 and a third. You're supposed to give two tithes every year, and every third year, another tithe. So you're really giving 23 and a third percent of your money to the temple and the priests and the people. So if you want a tithe like Old Testament people, we'll take 23 and a third and bring it. Okay? But you probably are just going to give 10 because that's what we've been taught. And that's fine. Like, you give whatever God tells you to give. But the point is that the money is not yours. You're going to have to die to the car you want, to the iPhone you deserve, you think, to the house you think will give you joy. It's going to cost you your reputation. Others may look down on you and consider you to be an exclusive, judgmental bigot. You have any friends out there in your work world or neighborhood who, because you're a Christian and hold a, a standard morality, look down on you as a bigot? Or do you have other Christian friends who are going to gossip about you because you helped out a person in need who they hate, who they've been done wrong by, and you're still going to love those people? Your reputation must go to the cross and die. 
Your time has to go to the cross and die. Your reputation is going to go to the cross and die. And maybe, maybe you will even have to suffer to the point of death. Why follow Jesus? Who wants any of that? Why do we claim that Jesus is our Savior, and yet we keep trying to live by our time, our money, our reputation, our agendas? It's because of this reality that we follow Jesus, not just for this life, but for the next life. In the next life, when you wake up after your first death and experience life that is everlasting, all of us, into the next world, you will actually experience life that you and I have always been made to experience. The problem is that we're just impatient people and we want it now. And as I said at the opening, you can't get it now. That's the lie straight from the pit of hell saying that you can have the life that is promised in the future right now. And God is telling you through the prophet of John that you follow Jesus to the point of death because of the hope that is set out for us in the next life. But there's more than that. We give up everything. We commit our entire lives to Jesus, and it costs us. But you know what? It's no more than what it costs Jesus to get you. What did Jesus have to give up? He had to give up his riches. When it says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace for the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, we often think, oh, he was rich in heaven. No, the idea is that he was rich on this earth. Mary and Joseph were very well-to-do people, that they could have servants, and they could take their entire family down to Jerusalem for several weeks and just leave their home alone. Who can do that? Probably people who have means. And Jesus gave up all of that. Not just his heavenly wealth, but his earthly wealth he gave up. Jesus gave up his own agenda. If I was Jesus, my agenda would be like, snap my finger, you annoy me, you're dead. That's my agenda. And yet Jesus' agenda was not that. You know who interrupts his agenda more than anyone? Peter. The closest person to, one of the closest people to him was the most annoying to him, most likely. As we'll see in a few minutes, he has to tell Peter to get behind me, Satan. Like the idea that Jesus did not have to give up his agenda is ridiculous. He regularly had to surrender his agenda to the Father. And he had to give up his reputation. There is no more shameful death in the ancient world, than the death of being naked on a cross. This is why it was so hard for Christian Jewish people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, is that he would actually go through that shameful agony. We commit our entire lives to Jesus unto death for the hope of the next life, because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us, so we get that next life. This isn't me doing it for the sake of Jesus so I earn it. No, this is me looking to the one who has already done all of it for me. He's done it for you. 
And so we commit our lives to the point of death of everything because it is exactly the love of God for you in the person of Jesus that he demonstrated it and did it perfectly for you and I so that we can actually enjoy the life that is truly life that is to come. So Father, help us this new year to be people who increasingly realize the hope that is set out before us in the new creation. The world that Jesus will come back, consummate, dwell with us, where love will permeate, where life will be filled, where light will be all around. This will be the world that we've all been longing for and waiting for. We pray against the evil one that he would not lead us into temptation, that we would not believe the lies that we can have that life right now. And that's because the powers of this world are still operative. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would come today. Come today, Lord Jesus. And finally dismiss those powers of sin, Satan, and death forever. And until that, help us to keep remembering that Jesus, you gave up everything to the point of death because you loved us, desired us to be with you. And so God, help 2023 to be a year that we grew, but this year, a year that we long and have expectation and hope of you meeting with us even more. May our church, this group of people, press deeper into the love of God, into the gospel together, so that we create a little outpost of the kingdom of God that is full of life and love and light, that will attract and draw people who are needing that love and life and light to come into the kingdom of God. As we pray over this next year that you would Protect us, keep us, keep us unified, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.